0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything.
1: In a post-Trump world, these pastors are ditching the evangelical label for something new. News by Sarah Pulliam Bailey. South Bend. I.N.D. Emotions ran high at the gathering of about 100 pastors at a church about five miles from the University of Notre Dame. Many hugged. Some shed tears. One confessed she could not pray anymore. Some had lost funding and others had been fired from their churches for adopting more liberal beliefs. All had left the evangelical tradition and had come to discuss their next steps as post-evangelicals. The Two-Day Meeting which took place at South Bend City Church in mid-October, was intended for just 25 pastors, but grew through word of mouth. It is part of a larger reckoning inside congregations and among individuals grappling with their faith identity in the wake of Donald Trump's presidency and calls for racial justice following the murder of George Floyd. Many of these leaders were startled to learn that about 8 out of 10 white evangelicals voted for Trump in both of his presidential runs, and they believe the evangelical movement has been co-opted by Republican politics. There's obviously some sort of desire for belonging for people who feel homeless right now, said Mike Goldsworthy, a California-based ordained minister who organized the gathering. As the pastors traded stories, they quickly found shared experiences. They lamented their conservative evangelical parents who watch Fox News, as well as their peers who had re-examined their beliefs so much that they lost their faith entirely. They skewed younger, many in their thirties with tattoos covering their arms. Most of the leaders held some belief in Jesus, and the idea that people gathering in churches is still a good idea. Many want their churches to be affirming, meaning that they would perform same-sex weddings, and include LGBTQ people in leadership and membership. They preferred curiosity over certainty, inclusion over exclusion. They also vocally oppose racial injustice and Trump and they want their churches to be part of solutions to building or rebuilding their local communities. South Bend City Church, where they met, had purchased and renovated a section of a historical Studebaker factory as part of a local effort to revitalize the area. They looked to each other to ask, what could it look like to organize as post-evangelicals? They had at least one thing in common, they were all on some journey of deconstruction, the process of re-examining their long-held beliefs and they wanted to participate in reconstruction and the building up of something new.
0: And that's enough. That's enough. I I won't make you listen to any more of that. That is an article in the Washington Post, which my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, sent to me yesterday. He disturbed my peace. Here I was trying to relax, trying to think good thoughts. It's the holiday season. And JP sends me this. Mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. Um, I'm totally kidding, by the way. Not fully awake yet, so my humor is going to be a little offbeat. Not that it's onbeat when I'm totally awake once I get going, but if you're just listening, just tuning in, my name is Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, not the Washington Post, and... Today is Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. This is episode 266 of the podcast, and let's jump right in on this piece in the Washington Post, because the Washington Post has this little tagline, the, the tagline, the tagline for the Washington Post is laughable to me, post the 2020 election democracy dies in darkness. That is the tagline. Now, what's rich about this to me is that there is a difference between people taking a vote on something and consulting the community and saying, hey guys, what do you think? We're really grappling with this question of what to do here and we need your input. There's a difference between that And what the Democrats did in 2020, what the Democrats did in 2020, I quite frankly believe is they participated in widespread fraud because they decided that how majority of people were going to vote was not acceptable. It was not okay. And outlets like the Washington Post helped carry water for the Democrats and keep scandalous stories about Democrats out of the news, out of the headlines. Outlets like the Washington Post ran smear campaigns against not just Donald Trump, but anybody affiliated with Donald Trump. And what's crazy to me in reading through this article in particular, which I would advise, I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode, You can go and read the whole thing for yourself. We're just going to skim it, aside from that first chunk that I allowed Washington Post's robot, lady robot, to read for you. But what's so interesting is it's not enough for the Washington Post types, for the left in media, for the left in academia, for the left in... (coughs) evangelicalism or post-evangelicalism, if you will, to go after Trump himself or his family or people who served in his cabinet or lawmakers who supported him, worked with him, who spoke well of him. It's not enough for them to go after news organizations, which report favorably on Republicans. No, no. We have to go out of out of our way, <laughs> we have to go the whole way. We got to just burn it all down. We've got to go after eight and ten evangelical Christians in America who voted for this guy. We got to go after mom and dad who watched Fox News. We got to go after the rest of the church leadership who refused to go along when we said we wanted to be affirming of homosexuals and bisexuals and transgendered people and all forms of sexual immorality. We have to go after everybody who disagreed with us because we like democracy when it gives us what we want and we don't like democracy when it says no. And so the irony of ironies here is that you're talking about democracy dying in darkness. I mean, is that a threat <laughs> is that? <laughs> yeah, I think w- the Washington Post would like you to believe <clears throat> that they're putting themselves forward as the hero to save us from democracy dying in darkness. No, I, I think, I think the Washington Post is there with a BB gun, popping light bulbs in the ceiling. You know, ping, ping, ping. You know, they're just knocking them out one by one. But the irony of ironies is that from the local community that you came from standpoint, you woke pastors, so-called, the democratic thing to do would have been to give up on your crazy progressive brainwashing and embrace Orthodox Christianity. Embrace what the Bible actually says and what God says, and who God has always been and is and will always be, because God doesn't change. God doesn't update himself to suit your preferences because you've decided it's time for God to grow up. It doesn't work that way. The democratic thing to do, if what you said was true, that eight in ten, eight in 10 American evangelicals voted for Trump, the democratic thing to do would have been to accept the decision, wouldn't it? But of course, it's not that way. You say you're for democracy. All the while, only you really know what everybody secretly wants. Forget what they said they wanted. Forget how they voted. Forget their statement of faith. Let's not even have a statement of faith, guys. There's a great idea, a brainy idea that pops up later in this Washington Post Article. Let's not even have a statement of faith. Why do we need to believe anything whatsoever? I just want to belong to a community of people who, like me, believe that radical doubt is the highest end of man. In the next paragraph, past where I turned off the Washington Post robot, it reads Amy McCall, who was once a pastor at Chicago based megachurch Willow Creek, is one of those leaders speaking of these leaders who are getting together in South Bend, Indiana, to discuss their post-evangelicalism, which, by the way, is a trigger word, because even if you say post-evangelicalism, you still have the word evangelicalism in there, and that's going to trigger people who have an association in their minds by virtue of the 8 in 10 evangelical Christians who voted for Trump. So you're not even sure you're comfortable with calling it Post-evangelicalism, because even just that little taint there, maybe will pollute and corrupt the whole thing. It'll it'll set people on edge, hurt their precious fifties. They're going to need safe spaces from even the barest remembrance of the word evangelicalism. That's the kind of folks we're dealing with here. But Amy McCall. Once a pastor at Chicago-based megachurch, Willow Creek, which is, uh, you're already off to a bad start. You were already off to a bad start when you said she was a pastor. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in Timothy and in Titus, those letters that he wrote to two disciples of his, he gives qualifications for overseers and deacons. Overseers are the equivalent of what we now refer to as pastors in the common parlance. In both lists of qualifications that the Apostle Paul lays out, he starts off with, must be the husband of one wife. Must be the husband of one wife. God does not play by your stupid egalitarian rules. He just doesn't. He's not bound by your idea that the only fair option is for men and women to be treated in a uniform fashion. We should have just as many female pastors as we have male pastors. Uh, Where is that written? Where is that written? That's not true. You made that up or someone else made that up and you believed them. But why did you believe them? Because your first love was not Christ. Your first love was being a part of a community for the benefits that it gave you. Your first love was being well-liked. And once you realized you couldn't be part of both this church community that proved surprisingly intractable on certain doctrinal things, even though they're sketchy on other items, and also the broader Chicago culture and community, you decided that the needs of the many outweighed the needs of the few as you saw it. In part because outlets like the Washington Post tried to help you believe that actually the majority view is actually everybody really thinks this now. Actually, radical doubt is the highest virtue. So Amy Mikal was once a pastor. And she shouldn't have been because she's not qualified to be a pastor because she's a she, because she's a woman. But it gets better. She said that her new church and I quote, called A Restoration Church. I don't know what they're restoring, but what are they restoring? They would probably literally say your faith in humanity in some form or fashion, which is just the problem. You shouldn't have faith in humanity. You should have faith in the Lord God Almighty. God doesn't have faith in humanity. We shouldn't either. But... A restoration church is avoiding megachurch strategies such as taking pictures from the ceiling to count attendance, which is fine. I, I'm fine with not doing that because I think that's weird. I think that's, I think that's odd. I think you could have all kinds of weird problems taking pictures of people from the ceiling to count heads in the most efficient way possible. What, we have a fear of commitment that we can't pick some people who are able to count and also consistently willing to commit to counting? Really? If you have that many people, that it's a logistical nightmare to count them, maybe you should have multiple churches. Maybe, maybe your community should meet in multiple places, multiple outlets. You guys should spread out a little bit. It's like when all seven of my children pile into my office here at the house, and I tell them, hey guys, we don't all need to be in this room in order to love one another in order for us to do what it is that we need to do you can do what you're doing downstairs in the sitting room and you can do what you're doing downstairs at the dining room table and you can go outside actually because you've clearly got way too much energy and we don't all need to be in this small 10 by 10 space especially while I'm trying to concentrate but I'm fine with Amy McCall and her restoration church so-called Not counting people from the ceiling. That's fine. Way to lead with that one, by the way. Start with a softball. If only it stopped there. Of course it doesn't. She's encouraging her her congregants to reconsider God with male pronouns. Uh, Okay. All right. right. First, you're made into a pastor even though you have no business being a pastor as a woman. You don't. And I don't hate you for wanting to serve in the church Yet at the same time, you need to be rebuked for reaching for something which God does not have for you. And what are your reasons for reaching for that thing? Are your reasons for reaching for that thing because you really, really want to honor God and serve God and serve these people? Or are your reasons that you want to promote yourself and you want to promote this extra biblical agenda in the church? You're a feminist. It's not enough that you were made into a pastor when you shouldn't have been. You go the next step and say, is God really a he? Well, yes, actually. Yes. God is always, and I say always, and what I mean is without fail, without exception, exclusively referred to with the male pronoun in the scriptures. Always. Always. Similarly, When the authors of biblical books get more explicit and really drill down on what it is that they're trying to say with regards to the created order of things, with regards to man and woman, man is to be the head of his wife as Christ is head of the church. And that gives us an image and a picture of the kind of submission which God wants from the community of faith, his body, Christ's body here on earth, towards himself. But you don't get that picture when the women are insisting, anything you can do, I can do better. That is a rebellious, stiff-necked, wicked, contrary, arrogant position to take. It just is. And it's not, first and foremost, an arrogant position to take with regards to men. No, it's first and foremost an arrogant position with regards to God. In relation to God, we're telling God, egalitarianism is fair. And if you're not an egalitarian God, then you're not fair. You're not just. We know better than you. We set the standard and you had better get in line or we're out of here. Is that what you want? You want us to leave? But of course, it's never put in those terms. It's always kept on the human level. And it's made into some kind of a power struggle between people. And all the while, it's godlessness. Where's the mention of what God says in his word in this whole Washington Post article? In this whole piece covering these post-evangelical apostate pastors. Where do I hear them saying, here's what God's word says. It is written. Here's what God wants in his church. If it's in there, I missed it. Continuing on. As a church, they're studying through the Bible to see what they think collectively. That's what the next line is in this article. Now, I think this can seem almost true, almost good, almost praiseworthy, almost laudable, As a church, they're studying through the Bible to see what they think collectively. The trouble is, when you were part of a different church, if you really thought they were off base, but they were all telling you, or eight out of ten of them were telling you, hey, Amy, actually, sweetie, we love you dearly, but that's not what God's word says. You didn't accept that decision. So I don't know why you think you're going to get a better result now. I don't know why you think studying the Bible now with this new group is going to produce better results, except you've been much more selective in who you attract and who you retain and who you promote in this new group so that the outcome is fairly foregone. You're creating an echo chamber pseudo-church. Because you like that familiar routine of having a church. You like that comforting illusion of being right with God, even as you're rebelling against God. This is heresy. It's heresy what is being described in this article. And not heresy because, oh, see, that's just the problem. You think that Christians need to vote Republican in order to be Christians. No. I think that Christians need to vote according to what God's word says. And I think that one party is for killing babies in mass, is for destroying individual liberty and the ability that I have and men and women across this country have to be able to feed and clothe and house their children and educate their children. We have one party in the Democrats, which is for... Radical sexual immorality. Anything goes except the Christian ethic where sex is concerned. We have in the Democratic Party a satanic rebellion against God's standard of right conduct and truth. And on the Republican side, we're getting there. They're, they're wringing their hands. They have these log cabin Republicans who want to be LGBTQ-affirming. And Donald Trump invited an LGBTQ Republican organization out to Mar-a-Lago recently just to let everybody know, hey, we are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender-affirming as well. See? The Republican Party is getting there, but it's not there just yet. And insofar as you might be able to vote for a Republican, who is going to protect your ability to provide for your family, who's going to protect your ability to protect your family, who's going to protect your right to worship God in person, going to church, meeting, assembling with other believers. Insofar as voting for a Republican might get you some protections for your essential God-given liberties, and it might push back on enslavement to a satanic ideology yeah christians might need to vote republican 8 out of 10 times and the other two maybe they just object and they just sit this one out because they just they can't do it in good conscience and that's fine maybe that's meat offered to idols donald trump not a perfect character definitely not jesus not the second coming of the messiah You got to sit this one out? Cool. Cool, bro. I disagree. I'd love to talk with you about it, about why we disagree. But we're still brothers. If you're not sure whether you should vote for the party that promotes abortion and sexual immorality and the molestation of children and the oppression of all the rest of us, if you're not sure whether you should vote for that party as a Christian, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know where to start. I do want to talk with you, but I don't know that we're going to be friends afterwards. The hardest part is what we were taught, Michal said. We want to be a place that asks more questions than provides answers. The hardest part is that we were taught to take the Bible literally, she says. The hardest part is that we were taught to take the Bible literally. We want to be a place that asks more questions than provides answers. What you're talking about, what you're describing there, Amy Michal, is radical doubt. You're talking about the product of hundreds of years of philosophy, which is vain, which is a chasing after the wind. Vanity of vanities, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, a chasing after the wind. That's what you're describing. We want to ask questions. You know what? Of all the people who could possibly take a swing at this Washington Post article and these post-evangelical, post-Christian, let's be honest, pastors, these apostate pastors. I am the last person to criticize someone for asking questions. I love questions. I will ask questions all day long. In fact, sometimes I catch myself having gone a long extended stint without having made an single statement, only asking question after question after question. This is coming up as I'm riding around in the countryside with my new co-workers at Eagle Automation. And I'm getting to know them and I'm trying to get to know the job. And what I do is I ask question after question after question after question about who they are, about how they see things, about how the company works, about how our customers work, about how the instruments and the components that we're handling, servicing work. I ask question after question. And sometimes I have to stop and ask myself, okay, is this person going to have any respect for me whatsoever if I don't make a statement here and there? I need to make a statement and I need to be clear that I have ideas. I am not a know nothing. I do know some things. I love questions because questions are a great way to learn things, but if you never get to the point where you actually answer those questions on purpose because you're stubborn, you're not actually asking questions. What you're actually doing is you're saying, no, this is the same thing with my children. The same thing with my children is what these lapsed post-Christian apostates are doing. I tell my child to do something, clean their room, go feed the chickens, run down and get the mail. What have you? And I met with 20 questions. And sometimes those questions are genuine. And you have to listen. You have to listen and pay attention. Are these genuine questions? Are these real questions? Are you really needing to know this? Is this relevant to what I just asked you to do? Is it an urgent thing that I answer this question before you do what I asked you to do? Is this actually just a complaint in disguise? But you're not actually asked question. You're more so just in an indirect way finding fault with the fact that I just told you to do something you don't want to do. At a certain point, I have to tell my children, every good parent has to tell their child, that's enough. Go do what I asked you to do. Go do what I told you to do. When we're always asking questions, but we don't want answers, we're not really asking questions. We're making indirect statements. It's very inefficient, actually. It's a very inefficient kind of stubbornness. I'm sticking my tail in the ground and I'm not going to go along with you and I'm not going to join with you. And it's actually, oddly enough, proof that what these people are claiming is a lie. And I don't just mean what they're saying about God. I mean what they say their intentions are. They're lying about their intentions. I think they're probably lying to themselves as well. But they're lying when they say that they want to study the Bible and figure out what they think about it collectively. No, you don't. You want to gather with other people who have together with you, like you, decided you find fault with God and you find fault with his word and you find fault with historic Orthodox Christianity. But you also want to be called a Christian. So you want to have your cake and eat it too. But you can't have it both ways. You can't. And Lord deliver the people who would fall under your sway and think that you know what true Christianity is just because... You have an appearance of godliness. You're denying its power. Those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not just spirit. Not just sentiment. Not just your feelings. When you feel like it. You feel like you're worshiping? Cool. You say that there is one God? Good. You're doing well. Also, demons believe that, by the way. Did you know that? Also, demons believe that there's one God. So you, you're you not scoring any points just yet. You're not putting points on the scoreboard with that one. You say that you believe there's a God, but that's about as far as you can go. Everything else is up for grabs. Everything else is debatable. Continuing on with this Washington Post article, it continues on this same track and leads to places you might expect it to. Over the past several decades, the evangelical movement has produced celebrity preachers and teachers with churches that attract thousands of people to their services. But most of the leaders gathered here didn't have massive social media followings, podcasts, or books to sell. Their discussions were led by Scott Erickson, an Austin-based artist and Brit Barron, a black Mexican lesbian who worked for a megachurch in California at 26 before she began re-examining her beliefs. As she jumped on the church stage as the group's spiritual guide, in quotations, Barron joked about possibly needing a fog machine like the ones used in many evangelical megachurches. She asked the gathered leaders whether it was necessary to believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, a question that would make most evangelicals deeply uncomfortable because it is generally seen as a core belief of the Christian faith. In this room, no one walked out, but no one cheered either. The pastors just listened. Quote, we can come to the table knowing that we are good, that we have divinity in us, end quote, Barron said as they were about to take communion together. This is a sham. This is a corpse bride. You're a spiritual guide leading people, guiding people straight to hell, period. What you're describing is not a new thing. It's not some clever thing that you just came up with. It's not a return to the faithful tradition of generations past. It's not a greater fulfillment of what God commands and ordains in the scriptures. This is a very old thing called apostasy, called heresy. Y'all are heretics. You're not Christians. You're false believers. You're false brothers. You're false teachers, more to the point. And as false teachers, you have extremely unpleasant judgment coming from the most high God. You're not under grace. You need to know that you're not under grace. You are under judgment, particularly if a lesbian woman, you don't just stop with, Hey, let's have a woman get up there. You have a lesbian woman as your spiritual guide. Okay. You don't know whether we need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, you're not a Christian. If you don't know whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential, is literally essential, you're not a Christian of any kind. You're not a Christian layperson, and you're not a Christian minister. You're an anti-Christian. You are of your father, the devil. And it's crazy. The radical doubt Stops fast when it comes to 8 out of 10 evangelicals, self-styled evangelicals voting for Donald Trump in 2016. It stops very, very quickly. stops on a dime when evangelical Christians are not so hot on this whole critical race theory business. And they're not affirming the LGBTQ plus movement. All of a sudden, your radical doubt turns into absolute conviction and certainty. And so we know what is most important to you. We know who your God is. We know what is sacred to you. And it isn't Jesus. And it isn't God's word. And you're not a Christian. But you want so badly to have that veneer of respectability. And you're like Cain, jealous of Abel, offering a sacrifice that was accepted by God. So you would rather destroy evangelicalism in this country than see your brother get a blessing because his offering was accepted and yours was rejected. This doesn't stop with you gathering together to talk about your precious feelings, make jokes about fog machines, decide that you don't want to do attendance counting from the ceiling, it doesn't stop there. Where it goes is SUVs plowing into parades. And the president of the United States of America isn't going to go and visit with the families of the victims of that attack. The biggest domestic terror attack in quite some time, obviously fueled as I see it. We want to wait for the facts to come in if the facts ever do come in, by the way. But obviously fueled by the media narrative, the Democrat Party's narrative. This is not abstract. Please, 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 tell me all about how your parents watch too much Fox News. Do I find that annoying? Yeah, sure. Except that I've got bigger problems to worry about than your parents watching too much Fox News. Like, I don't know, black supremacists plowing into... Five dozen Christmas parade goers. Men, women, children, elderly. Didn't matter. All that mattered was they were white people having a good time. He wanted to strike a blow against white America. Why don't you post evangelicals, gather around, and grapple with that? Chew on that one. These are the chickens coming home to roost. These are the seeds that were sown reaping a harvest of oppression. Actual oppression. You don't know what oppression is. You think oppression is somebody made a snarky comment about your tattoo because they grew up more theologically conservative than you did. You think oppression is someone disagreeing with your line of reasoning that the resurrection is maybe non-essential. Maybe we don't need to believe that. And what's crazy is, take this line from Barron. Obviously doesn't believe in the depravity of man. Doesn't believe in original sin. Quote, we can come to the table knowing that we are good, that we have divinity in us. wait a second. Hold the phone. You think you're good? Where was all that talk of we being good a minute ago when we were talking about Republicans and Donald Trump and your parents who watch too much Fox News And eight out of 10 evangelical Christians opposing the LGBTQ, presumably opposing abortion, opposing the lockdowns, opposing tyranny by Democrats. Where was all this talk of people being good? You don't think those people are good. You think you're good. Anybody who agrees with you is good. I see. I'm going to leave you with one last line, skipping down. You shouldn't have to believe anything in particular to be a part of this group, she said, before pausing to reconsider. Well, if you're racist and homophobic, you might be uncomfortable. There it is. There it is. A whole lot of hip, trendy, attractive, chock full of self-esteem young people became pastors prior to the 2016 election. They became full-time ministry, and I have some in my family sent off with ticker tape parades go conquer the world for Jesus and then they get out there and it was all a lot of smoke and mirrors it was a fog machine the perception that they created the support that they drummed up they didn't have substance and they didn't have staying power and they didn't have the humility that is requisite for a servant of Christ to serve in any capacity much less the role of a pastor an overseer or a deacon, in Christ's church. So then when it came out that they lacked theological rigor and substance and orthodoxy, and they were challenged on it, they responded poorly, and it blew up in their faces. And now they're going to take their ball and go home. And now they're debating whether the resurrection of Christ is even a necessary thing. I can't pray anymore, some of these people are saying. I can't even pray anymore. Well then, we know who your God is and we know what is sacred to you. You need to repent. Martin Luther said a Christian's life is one of continual repentance, lifelong repentance. You need to get acquainted with that. You need to get acquainted with what it is that Martin Luther was putting down there. Pick up what he was putting down. I got to run though. That's enough for this episode. Check out the full article. Really, truly, thank you, JP Chavez, for sending that to me. It's important to know these things. It's important to grapple with them, to understand them, to think about them, to be very intentional. Even as we're addressing these things, we really need to guard our own hearts, our own thinking, our own doctrine. And we need to do this with gentleness and love and respect. False teachers, uh, you guys you're going to get a stern rebuke because you are thick-skinned and you're used to, obviously, putting people off and not listening. Some of us are just confused. We need to be restored gently, but no less diligently for being gentle. So let us be found faithful in that day. I'll leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.